News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Bill Canadians finally get some answers. We want to know what caused all the travel chaos with airlines and airports last month. And most importantly, we want to know that it's not going to happen again. The House of Commons Transport Committee has unanimously agreed to hear from those in the industry on these issues. And for more on the story, we're joined now by Mackenzie Gray, our Global National Reporter. Good morning. Good morning. So how is this going to unfold? What's going to happen? Well, it's going to be marathon testimony today. So, I mean, we're going to be hearing from the top executives from Air Canada, from WestJet and Sunwing. We'll also hear from some folks who work at the different airports, from the airport authorities. And importantly, we're going to hear from Omar Algabra, too. I think the Conservatives will really be trying to pin this on Mr. Algabra saying, hey, we saw the issues that happened back in the spring of 2022, yet at Christmas time, we had a lot of the same problems. What's going on? I think the Liberals are really going to be trying putting this on the airline, saying, look, we did our part. We got the CBSA officers that the airlines were complaining about. We got the security guards the airlines were complaining about. But you guys didn't have the staff. And frankly, in some cases, you guys didn't even try to get the Canadians who were either stranded down in Mexico or other Caribbean destinations or who were in Canada just trying to see their family. You didn't even try to get the flights out. So it'll be a contentious day. It starts at 10.30 Eastern here, and it goes all the way to 4.30. So for a committee hearing, that's quite long. We're hearing from a number of different witnesses. It, People are wanting to know, like you said, Simi, to get to the bottom of it. I don't think we're going to hear anything substantive from the airlines that say that this isn't going to happen again. But you said the word contentious there. Do you think there will be some of that? Absolutely. I, you know, And I think for the airline executives, It'll be the questions from the Liberals that I would expect to be the hardest. You know, I think there's a lot of politically at stake for them here to make the the blame go on to the airlines. And as I mentioned before, the Conservatives are really already trying to tie this to the Liberals. Uh, you know, it is clear that the issues that happened this time were not the same ones that happened in the spring. The lines at the airport were not predicated on the fact that there weren't enough security guards. They were predicated on the fact that the airlines couldn't get the flights out. And the Conservatives would try and have you believe that Omar Gabra has a crystal ball that controls the weather, which, you know, is not the case. Uh, but it certainly will be contentious from all sides. And it is high stakes. This is a big issue. Everyone knows someone who is impacted by travel. And this is the second time it's happened for the Liberals. If it happens another time, then it's a real problem for them politically heading into the night of the next election. Right, because there is that Canadian Transportation Agency, right? They're the regulator that looks after these complaints. But I understand there's a huge backlog. There is a huge backlog, and, and that's for folks who want to go through the Air Passenger Bill of Rights. So if you were one of the people that were impacted over Christmas and you were looking to get, you know, let's say $800 because your flight was delayed by more than 12 hours, which is what you would get if Air Canada was your carrier, uh, we see from many people who try to go through that process that Air Canada, WestJet, any of the airlines will try and stonewall you in paperwork, deny your claims, and make it very difficult for you to get the money that you were owed. And I interviewed Omar Al-Gabra about this last week and said, look, we hear from advocates who cover this issue, who follow this. They say that it's actually easier for you to go to small claims court or someone who's been aggrieved in this situation, if you have a dispute with the airline, than actually going through the process with the CTA. And he said he recognizes that, and that is something that they're potentially going to change to make it more difficult in the Air Passenger Bill of Rights for the airlines to wiggle out of their responsibility which is clear that they do that right now. And even when you go through the process, it takes an extended period of time. There's a huge backlog right now. So that was the Liberals' signature kind of political promise going all the way back to their first mandate. And it's clear right now that that process 
is you know essentially broken in terms of getting Canadians the money they need or the money that they are owed when they have issues like we saw over Christmas. Hmm. And so will they hear from travelers too who were affected? No, we're not expecting to hear from travelers today, but you know we've heard a lot of those stories and they, they weren't really viral on social media, which is I think why we've seen the, the outcry that we are seeing from various levels of politicians. One group we're also not going to be hearing from today is Via Rail. That'll be coming up later. We saw a bunch of issues with here and here uh, near Ottawa where trees were falling on trains, people were stuck on trains for 20 hours, there was no water, there was no food, the fire department had to come basically rescue these people. So it's not just air travel, it's train travel too. And of course, Via Rail is a crown corporation, so there's another kind of governmental layer that's involved with that too. So they'll be hearing from them at a future date, and, and I would expect that these hearings will go on for a while. This is a major issue that not only uh, cost the Canadian economy a boatload of money during Christmas, but really impacted tons of people at a time when, you know, I think a lot of folks are sitting there thinking, do I want to travel now? Can I trust that the system works properly? That's what people felt before with the issues that we saw in the spring, and I think that's really underscored now, which is a problem for not only the airlines, but the government, because remember, the federal government is the largest shareholder in Air Canada. They own over 5% of the company from the bailout that they have. So there's, a, there's also a financial interest for all Canadians that they get their uh, business hmm. together. Is there a, do you get a sense that the government is interested in doing something here? Like, do they feel that pressure, Mackenzie? Uh, they definitely feel the pressure. I think that's why we're seeing El Gabra come out and say, look, I'm willing to change the passenger bill of rights. But in the end, they can't staff the airlines. And, and you talk to experts in the field, and it's clear that Air Canada, WestJet, Sunwing, they're having major problems getting staff in the right places to be able to handle things. Uh, and we saw that, you know, kind of going back to the passenger bill of rights issues, you know, we saw that with a lot of things that we, when we spoke to people who were at the airport, the official reason that they'd be given was that the weather's bad, but you get to the airport and you talk to someone at the counter, and the issue wasn't that the weather was bad, the issue was that they didn't have the staff to be able to fly the plane, whether right. it be the pilots and the staff is timed out or they just don't have any agents or whoever it may be at the gate to be able to get you onto the plane. That's a problem for the airlines. You know, the, the federal government can't control that. Uh, but, you know, going back to the Air Canada point, in most situations, if you're the largest shareholder in a company and a company is performing dismally in a very public way, you go to the shareholder meeting and you say, hey, I've got some major problems here and we need to change things. I've asked the transport minister about that. The government doesn't seem to have the stomach to do that at this point in time. But if Air Canada in particular keeps having the issues that they have, I don't doubt that they'll throw around the power to say, hey, we need some changes here to make sure that these things don't happen again. Interesting. Mackenzie, thank you so much. Thanks, Simi. That's Mackenzie Gray, Global National Reporter, uh, talking this morning about the House of Commons Transport Committee. They will be hearing some testimony from the airline industry executives, vice presidents of certain airlines, not the actual presidents showing up for this, uh, but president of Sunwing and others, uh, just trying to find out what happened in the month of December to cause all that traffic chaos here from the airports too. I'm sure there'll be a lot of blame being distributed back and forth, but I know Canadians are engaged and interested to hear this because we don't want to see this happen again. I think most of all, you want to see some consequences for that chaos, for people who missed their holidays with families, missed seeing loved ones. I mean, that that was pretty traumatic for a lot of people. So we'll be following along with that story. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So we've been hearing this week that potentially dozens of strata councils in this province are thinking about ways to bypass new housing laws that could lift rental restrictions. This was an effort by the province to address our housing crisis, people looking for places to rent. But some strata councils are thinking, well, listen, if we convert to 55 plus buildings, then perhaps we don't have to 
do any of that. Now, this new law was introduced by uh, Premier David Eby back in November, lifting restrictions, limited rentals, blocking families with children, and imposing age restrictions on buildings that were not meant for seniors. Premier Eby was on the show with us this week, and he said, no, this is no loophole. It's not really a loophole. The idea was that uh, we would be preserving seniors' housing. This is uh, potentially actually good news for seniors that are looking for a place to rent. Um, we'll monitor it carefully uh, to make sure that uh, it rolls out as intended. But the, the age restriction was left in place to make sure that seniors have safe uh, places and, uh, and places with other seniors that are at the same stage of life. Okay, but a number of strata councils are going ahead with this because they think it's going to help them bypass the system. Joining us now is Tony Zarsadias, who's the CEO of Island Realm Real Estate. Tony, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Timmy. What are you hearing from strata councils? Well, I mean, we, we, it certainly is a very hot topic, and people are looking for ways to, you know, again, get around this, this um, opening of rentals. And as the Premier stated, it, it is not a loophole. Uh, what's happened is, you know, no building can be lit. Like, you cannot have a rental restriction anymore. So by implementing this 55-plus uh, age restriction, what people are hoping to do is, is they think that there'll be less renters, um, but you still will have renters. They'll just be 55 or over. So ultimately, what people are hoping to do is it's not necessarily going to accomplish the idea of, of eliminating renters altogether. Yeah, so that makes it sound like, Tony, then they're rushing into something that perhaps they don't fully understand or grasp the implications of this. Yes, 100%. I, I think what, what people really need to do is, is slow down and think about the long-term consequences. Um, you know, obviously, we have a, a housing issue. We need more rentals. I understand what the Premier did. The quickest way to add uh, rentals to, to the pool of, of housing within, within the province is to, open, to eliminate the rental restrictions. So I understand that. Um, now, it, it's caused a knee-jerk reaction because a lot of the strategies in the province have had rental restrictions for, for decades. So there's fear that, you know, people want to know their neighbors. And, and I think that's, that's a big um, issue. And people are thinking, okay, well, now if we open up these rentals, all of a sudden I'm not going to know who, who my neighbor is. And, and I think that's causing a lot of fear. And typically, you know, humans, we don't make great decisions when we're in states of fear. So I think people just need to take a breather and really look at what are the long-term consequences of implementing such a change in age bylaw. And what are some of those long-term um, consequences, do you think? Well, the biggest one is, is values. Um, you know, the, the, when, and whenever you add a restriction to a, a, a property, um, it limits the buyer pool. So if we look, so I, I just, before this call, I look at the census data from 2016, just because I wanted to give you some hard numbers. If we look at Victoria as an example, there were 96,455 adults, so over the age of 19 or 20 and over. So that's, that's who legally can buy a property in Victoria or, you know, in, in Canada. Mm-hmm. If you were to eliminate, so if you add this 55 plus bylaw, that would eliminate 44,935 adults under the age of 55. So that's 46.6% of your buyer pool that could potentially buy your property. So, um, and, and I, I have a couple of hard numbers, but, you know, ultimately it just, it's a, it's a bit of common sense. If you think, oh, you take away almost half of your buyers, the, pro- the value of your property is going to be lower because there's going to be less competition. There's going to be less people looking at it. It'll probably be stay on the market for longer. So people need to think about, you know, why are you in home ownership in the first place? And a lot of people, 
um, for, for most Canadians, that's the financial nest egg. That's what's going to help people, you know, get to the golden years and, and to, you know, have, have wealth in the future is by paying down a mortgage and then having value. So by implementing this uh, bylaw, you are definitely affecting the value of your property. Right. But are people ready to hear that, Tony? Because there sure seems to be a rush on this thing. Well, I, I, I mean, I'm, 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 you know, sound the alarm bells here to at least look at it, speak to, you know, a, a real estate professional and, and have a look at your area and say, like, what would happen to the values in our pro- of, of my property if this gets implemented before they do anything? Definitely seek legal advice because there's lots of consequences. Um, you know, if we look at values in, as an example, so I had to look at a, at a market that was very stable. It's, it's hard to look at markets like t- 2021. The market was going crazy. It was hard to compare month over month to see what was, was what was occurring with value. So I, I looked back at 2014, which was a very stable market. Pricing didn't change much. So if, if I there was a there's a street uh, Church Avenue in Victoria or in Saanich that has um, a number of condo buildings on it, uh, and right across the street from each other, you've got buildings of similar age and some with rent, rental uh, sorry age restrictions of 55 plus and some without. So when I count for when I factor in size, so eliminating like there's obviously size differences and a few other factors, but when I when I eliminate size as a variable, uh, the uh, two bedroom, two bathroom, 55 plus condo sold for almost well, 39.3, percent less than a building um, without the age restriction. So, that's, a, that's a pretty harsh difference there, but it, I wonder it, if some people are going to say, "Well, I'm not. I don't care about selling right now. I'm I'm staying here forever." So that's what I'm more concerned about. And and I'm certainly not saying that people shouldn't look at this. Like this might be something that you want to do, but if you are ever going to sell it, or if you're going to pass this on to your kids, or or whatever your ultimate exit strategy is with the property, that needs to be um, you know that needs to be accounted for, and people need to think about what the what. You know, what are you going to do eventually? Yes, you might live there forever, but you know, do you have people who you know that you're going to that might inherit the property, or uh, you might pass the property on to? Because it'll be their consequence as well. Right. So, are you hearing about quite a few stratas that are considering this? Well, yes, but I mean, it, it's like anything. Whenever we something new gets uh, announced, people there's a knee jerk reaction and, and everyone panics. But um, I, I think that calmer heads are, are going to prevail and people will seek legal advice and speak to real estate professionals uh, because, you know, this is a big change. It's very hard to undo um, a change in bylaws. So, you know, right now it's a hot topic, but five years down the road, people might realize, well, you know, renters are people too, and, and, and they are. Um, so, you know, and, and it might not be such a hot topic and people might say, well, you know, maybe we want to undo this age bylaw and, and it wouldn't be hard. It would be very hard to change it back. To remove the age bylaw. Is there a way, do you think, to make the rules in a strata that would address some of their concerns about having renters in the building? Well, that is it. That, it's it's a very difficult one yeah. because as soon as you start to try to limit um, people, it, it it does set up the potential for discrimination um, and also just uh, unneeded complexity. Um, at yeah. the end of the day, I, I think people need to remember, like, if somebody's going to rent their property out and they, they own that property, there has to be some level of, of care of that property, especially if it's been like it's been owner-occupied for a long period of time. Most people don't want to just rent it to, you know, some college student that's going to have big parties forever. I mean, they, they want to maintain the value of the property. So most people, the vast majority of people, uh, I, I wouldn't say, I would, 
I would stretch to say everyone wants to have responsible renters in their property. So, yeah. you know, we have to believe in each other and, you know, believe that, you know, people are going to make the best decisions they can. Does that mean that, you know, that there's a possibility that, you know, somebody will rent to an irresponsible renter? Sure, that's a possibility. But it's also a possibility that, you know, you might have in an, like a fully owner-occupied building. That doesn't mean every owner is going to be perfect either. That's very true. You know what, Tony, this was great information. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yeah, thanks Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That's Tony Zarsetius, who's the CEO of Island Realm Real Estate. Essentially with some good advice there for strata councils that think they're, you know, preventing, you know, renters of a certain age moving in by converting to a 55 plus building. Tony's got some great warnings and consequences to think about there. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Those awful holiday travel disruptions that we had last month are going to be front and center in Ottawa today as members of the airline industry, executives, executives from airports are going to be testifying in front of a House of Commons Transport Committee, supposedly to try to get answers about what the heck happened, hopefully to try to make sure it doesn't happen again. That's one topic. The other has to do with people who are probably still owed money. It really does depend on the airline that you are, are dealing with. I had a flight cancelled. And I was dealing with an American airline and got my money back right away. But if I had booked through the Canadian airline, I would still be waiting. How does this happen? Well, joining us now is Gabar Lukacs, who's the founder of AirPassengerRights.ca. Good morning. Good morning. So do you, have you, do you hear from a lot of people who are still waiting for their money? We have been hearing from people who are still waiting for refunds, yes. Unfortunately, some people made a mistake of... Uh, agreeing to, or at least not sufficiently protesting, receiving uh, uh, vouchers instead of refunds in the original form of payment, which was owed to them. And that keeps uh, haunting them, unfortunately. What do you mean? How does that haunt them? Well, um, vouchers tend to have an expiry date uh, and um, tend to have other conditions attached to it. While actually cash, you can go and buy with it whatever you want, whenever you want. Right. Okay. But is, is the airline quicker to offer the vouchers versus the cash? So when we are talking about a situation that happened almost two years ago when airlines misappropriated passengers' money for canceled flights that never operated because of the pandemic, airlines have been giving people worthless vouchers instead of actual refund of their money. And um, some people are still stuck with those vouchers. Right. Okay. So even from like last December, just like last month, Gabor, uh, there must be an awful lot of people still waiting. What are wh- what can they do? Uh, if it is from uh, you know that recent, the, the the solution is simple: statutory chargeback. If you use a credit card for making a payment and you didn't receive the services that you contracted for that you were promised, in most provincial uh, laws there is there are provisions for. Uh, essentially telling your credit card company you have to reverse the charges. Uh, it's important that you do it in writing and that you don't do what is called an um, internal chargeback, which will be based on the credit card's own internal rules. The credit cards don't like statutory chargebacks, but they are the law in the province and they have to obey it. So there, there are three steps. First, you send a, a formal letter according to uh, the requirements of your province's laws to the company. I'm canceling this contract because it failed to deliver. Then within 15 or 30 days, depending on your province, uh, if they don't give you a refund, you contact your credit card company, again in writing, and tell them uh, this contract has been canceled. 
the vendor, the merchant, refuses to give back the money, so please reverse it within two billing cycles, 60 days. That's typically what happens in most uh, provinces. And then the case of credit card has a legal obligation to reverse the charges. So they don't have a discretion. It's not that, like they're doing you a favor or they can investigate. You give them the paperwork. I gave a notice on this date to the company. They didn't refund me. Now you refund the money yourself. They have to do it. And if they don't, I would just claw back the money and just refuse to pay that amount on a credit card bill that is in dispute. And if the credit card wants it, I don't take it to court. But that way you get your money back. And I will even close my account with a credit card if necessary. Well, see, but you know the language and the words to use, right, to get the attention of the credit card companies. Well, uh, actually, in British Columbia, the um, BC Consumer Protection has a wonderful page which which provides specific BC forms. And uh, BC Consumer Protection actually has been quite willing to take steps to enforce those rights of passengers. But for other provinces, we have information on our website on statutory chargeback for each province where it is available. All right, we'll take a look at that. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. That's Gabor Lukacs, who's the founder of airpassengerrights.ca, with some advice on how to deal with this. If you're still owed money uh, when it comes to getting that refund for travel that didn't happen, it is a nightmare for so many people. But I think Gabor's onto something when it's about really about knowing the words to use, the language to use when dealing with not just the airlines, but the credit card companies, and to just hold the line on it. Has that worked for you? Have you had any luck doing this, or are you still struggling? Let me know. Simi at CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about our tourism industry here at home. I mean, it's been really hard the last couple of years to get that back up and running. And yes, you know, we've got tourists from Europe coming back, a lot of tourists coming from the United States. Can I tell you how many Washington plates I see these days out there? But what any, I think, tourism industry is hoping for in any city in North America is a return of international tourists, in particular coming from China. Well, now the industry says they are hoping that the rebound is about to start, that a spike in tourism from China might be happening because the Chinese government has lifted pandemic restrictions that curtailed foreign travel for the last three years. So, what are we hoping? Joining us now is Nancy Small, the CEO of Tourism Richmond. Nancy, thank you for being here. Thanks, Simi. Really appreciate you having me. How excited are you about this potential opportunity here? This is a fantastic announcement. Uh, you know, in your intro, you, you nailed it when you said we have had some visitation from uh, other markets. We've actually also had a lot of visitation from the uh, rest of Canada here in, in Metro Vancouver and in Richmond, U.S., Europe. Uh, certainly 2022 was a pretty good year. But until we get all those international markets back, uh, like China, which is a very important market for Richmond, as you can imagine, uh, th- this industry is still going to be limping along in, in the way that we have for the last three years. And we're extremely excited. And uh, certainly for, for our market in particular, China is a very important market. Um, we, we're expecting that the demand is going to come back pretty quickly. But there are there are complications, as you can imagine, with air access and making sure that we can get people here as quickly as we can. So uh, the reliance on the airline partners to bring back those flights, which were uh, we had we had the most significant fl- we had the most flights anywhere to mainland China here at YVR uh, pre pandemic. So getting back to that is going to take some time for sure. But I'm pretty confident that demand is going to be there. It's just a matter of uh, of getting getting people over here. 
but right. I can tell you we are very excited, and uh, this part of our market is uh, extremely important to Richmond. Yeah, is that the one area that hasn't rebounded? I know that YVR out at the airport, they said everything else has come back 100%, but the one area that hasn't is visitors from China. Yeah, absolutely. And and you can imagine why. I mean, we're, we're coming on three years now when um, certainly in Richmond, it's it's probably about 10 to 15 percent of our market significant business that that basically just has not existed for about three years. So bringing those people back and and they stay for a long time, they visit their friends and relatives, they eat in our restaurants, they visit our attractions. They they, they are very, very important. And, um, you know, they love it here. They they love British Columbia. And of course, you can imagine the connection to Richmond is is extremely important, um, certainly to a lot of uh, our community as well, who have not been able to see their family for three years. So, so this is this is an incredibly exciting week. And uh, you know, when, when you when you replay the last three years and you kind of say, well, now this is this is a time when when we can look forward. This is truly a very important milestone. So, where would the impact be felt the most, Nancy? Is it restaurants? Is it hotels? Like, how, where is the money spent? Yeah, it, it's a combination of things, Simi. Um, certainly hotels and restaurants for sure. Uh, restaurants are, are one of the most important parts, eating out and, and the dining experience that Richmond offers to um, authentic Chinese, from an authentic Chinese food perspective is very important. They also visit our wineries. Um, we have several um, ice winery and uh, wineries in Richmond, very, very uh, attractive to Chinese visitors when they come. And shopping, shopping is a really important part of the visitor experience when they come to uh, to a place like Richmond. So all of those places, in addition to our historic sites, everybody's ready. And, and frankly, we've been ready for a while. Um, you know, th- this has been a long time coming and, and we've all been waiting very anxiously to hear the fi- finally this news. And uh, but but as I said, it's not going to be a flip of the switch. Uh, it certainly is going to take a little bit of time for us to get back to the numbers um, that we were right. that we were seeing pre pandemic for sure. Is there any concern for one about competition? You're competing with a lot of other jurisdictions to get those same tourists, right, who all want to have the them come back and start spending money. And also, what about labor shortages that we've heard about, particularly in the tourism industry? I would assume that a lot of people who perhaps worked in this area before, they've moved on to something else, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, competition is is certainly one of the things that we're 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 seeing more and more as we're trying. We're all fighting for the people to come back to our market. I'm pretty confident that in Richmond we've got a great story to tell for for Chinese visitors. So so I'm I'm pretty confident there that we're gonna we're gonna be able to hold our own. The labor piece is is a critical issue that everybody is facing, and not only in the tourism industry, as you know, it's it, it's right across many different sectors. But within our industry, we have lost so many people over the last number of years um, as we've had to downsize and as our industry has changed. As we're building back up, we're seeing a lot of uh, challenges, frankly, and uh, you know things are going to hopefully get better in the in the next kind of year as as we're we're seeing more people come back to the industry. But you know that is our biggest challenge, and certainly restaurants. You're seeing, um, you know, they're not offering full menus. They're not open 
full time. Uh, I, I think we're going to hopefully I'm optimistic that with all levels of government working together as they have been in our industry, we're going to see some um, hopefully some positive uh, signs for the summer, because that's really what the concern is as we move into high season, how we can accommodate the demand that's going to come back. And, and we saw some great demand last year. Let me tell you, it, it was really great to see people back in our market. But as as markets like China open reopen and as more people get out and about and, our, and, and, and British Columbia, Richmond, Vancouver, we have got a great story to tell and, and we're very attractive to those people. We've got to be ready to meet that demand. And it's certainly a big challenge. Is your marketing underway already? Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, we have we have not um, started in China yet. Uh, that that's something we'll look at with our team. Uh, but certainly, I know that from our provincial partners, there you know that things are things are ready to go and have been. There have been lots of conversations over the years, and and, and we haven't pulled out of, of China completely. You know, talking to tour operators and the travel trade. But uh, things are going to rev back up pretty quickly. I, I can promise you that. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Nancy. Thank you, Simi. I really appreciate the interest. That's Nancy Small, the CEO of Tourism Richmond, one of many tourism industry professionals right now who are banking on the return of Chinese tourism numbers to really get back up to pre-pandemic levels. Every jurisdiction is hoping for this. And it's not just China either. I know that in Japan, they have finally also lifted some restrictions that had prevented many Japanese tourists from heading out to other countries, particularly places like Hawaii, and and spending those dollars that these other industries really wanted them to spend. So, yep, there is a change coming. And that will likely mean that you'll see that part of the industry ramping back up again. This is Mornings with Simi. And trying to get a handle on childcare in this province, it's been a big thing for the provincial government in trying to push $10 a day care, expanding the number of spaces. Like we've talked a lot about it over the last few years. But here's a startling new report out that says 45% of BC's early childhood educators, the companies that run these, these centres, are losing more staff than they can hire. Joining us now to talk about this is Emily Gottlich, who's the Executive Director of Early Childhood Educators of BC. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Are you surprised by that number? No, I'm I'm not. Like it is a startling number to see it uh, written out, but it's been decades of of a response of lack of investments in the early years, and so this is something that we're hearing over have heard for for decades, honestly. Right. So we started investing in childcare by providing spaces, but not the people to staff those spaces. Well, well, the government has put in a recruitment and retention strategy as well as, um, you know, building new spaces and reducing fees for families. Uh, The the reality is, is that we just have not have not had enough um, staff, qualified staff to come in and to to fill the need that is actually needed out there. So we know that government has put in um, strategies like a uh, ECE bursary program that's been highly successful, but it will take time to 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 support the need that is out there to have that many childcare um, um, workers in the sector. So, how long are we talking about here? Well, when we look at it from a professional organization, is that we we want to have really good 
early childhood educators and we want them to, so it will take some time there has to be some transition what we hope to see is um, moving forward is actually having a provincial wage grid in this province so that the people that actually come into the sector don't leave. So it's it's more around um, that recruitment, which is doing some, re- there's some really good things happening, but it's the retention of the people that are already working so that they have a wage grid that would be reflective of their education and the years that they have invested in, in this type of work. And so why are they leaving? Is it because there's uncertainty about their salary? Absolutely. So it's, um, you know, the government has put in a wage enhancement, which has been really appreciated by the sector. Uh, However, we do need, but what we do know from this report is that early childhood educators are making about $7 an hour um, compared to other similar educated professions out there. So we we would like to see uh, a wage grid that is reflective of of that, of the education that they have, of the complexities of the work that they're doing. And then that would also that will also help keep people in this in this um very important field. Right. So is it just because they may is there no uniformity among childcare centers about what people get paid? You exactly. That's exactly our issue. So you know, the wage enhancement has moved from one dollar to two dollars an hour. Now it's um, up to four dollars an hour. Like I said, is very welcome. But some people were starting off at minimum wage, and other people were making a lot more money. So there is. So this would be much more uniformed across the board. Right. Okay. Is there any progress being made towards that? Yes. So. Um, the, so our provincial government signed on with the federal government uh, with these agreements, and one of the and one of those stipulations within the within the agreement is to develop a wage grid. So we are really looking forward to that. Our partners, the Coalition of Childcare Advocates, are also working on a wage grid, uh, getting information from across the province about what is needed to to really have a robust wage grid that looks at um, other areas of compensation, like extended benefits as well. So it's that overall piece of of um, the working conditions that will really affect and impact the sector overall. All right. Is this something, is there a model, Emily, that you can look to in other provinces? Like, is any jurisdiction tackling this? There are across the board. So we we know that in uh, Manitoba, they've had a long-standing wage grid that is, you know, needs some work again too. Um, we are really looking um, outside of our jurisdictions to see what's going on and w- what can be used, and then also being making sure that it's specific to the diversity that's here in British Columbia. So we're really looking at that and hope to have that um, as a as a resource for government to look at as we move forward. Right, but if we get all these things in place then, Emily, and we can, you know, make sure that we keep more of these workers and hire more workers, are we not still looking at a couple of years before we can have the system at a level where everybody's happy with it? Yeah, it will take some time. And I think we've always been really open that this is going to probably take a decade to um, really come in to come in when you're building a new social system in Canada. You know, we have huge and rich opportunities to do this really right. And we need to have that time to do that. Um, 
but we have to have really clear um, targets and timelines, and that's what we're asking for. Okay, so then what is the progress like on that front then? Can you anticipate maybe this year there'll be some ground made here? We are really hopeful and and bringing this forward to government at every conversation that we're talking about. We've had um, many people out in communities, uh, early childhood educators and advocates, talking about the need for a wage grid. So we are bringing this and we're hearing some really positive feedback coming back from government about moving forward with a wage grid. So we're hoping, you know, I, I, I wish I knew. But um, I don't. But I. But we're ha- we're hearing some really positive pieces moving forward. All right. Well, let us know how that goes. I will. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, thank you for joining us. That's Emily Gallick, who's the executive director of Early Childhood Educators of BC, talking about a report that they have out called "Evaluation of the Early Care and Learning Recruitment and Retention Strategy in BC." Long name, but short to the point. We're not keeping enough childcare workers in this province, and it is because of concerns over pay, that there is no set structure so that workers will know how much they're going to get paid this year versus next year and the year after. There's no salary grid, essentially. And they're saying so much of this is now influenced by the government that there needs to be some kind of uniformity there to give people certainty about that. And that way they can actually continue to provide more and more childcare spaces out there. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Remember when the Vancouver Park Board announced last year that the Stanley Park train wasn't going to be able to operate for Halloween or Christmas? What did they say? Well, they said that the train was antique and needs, quote, highly specialized service and maintenance. And Technical Safety BC did say that there were a number of issues that were going wrong here. They had corrosion, there was damage to both the track and the rail cars. Anyway, all sorts of stuff where people started asking, well, wait a minute, what has the park board been doing if they haven't been looking after the train? Turns out other people with similar trains, and yes, there are people who have similar trains, uh, don't have a problem looking after theirs. And that's what Jordan Armstrong has been looking into. The Global News reporter and anchor joins us now. Good morning, Jordan. Good morning, Simi. Boy, you really dug into this. How did you get started? (laughs) Yeah, you know, I've found out uh, over the last few weeks, Simi, that uh, a, everybody loves a train, and B, everybody hates when a train is not running. This has become a third rail issue, so to speak. Um, I started hearing early on after the park board put out its initial explanation that, as you mentioned, this was an issue of antique machinery and, and whatnot, that, wait a minute, the, these trains, while maybe slightly different track sizes than the one in Stanley Park, um, are incredibly common. Like There are hundreds of them all over North America, and by my count, nearly half a dozen in British Columbia. There's one of the same make and model in Richmond. There's one of the same make and model in Aldergrove at the zoo. And there's one in Saanich, where we went earlier this week to Gailey Farms. It's a family business, and five people have no trouble operating the same type of train that Stanley Park has failed to maintain. Okay, this is so interesting. One, you got to travel to check out trains. That's pretty cool. Uh, (laughs) Second, so five people, how much work does it take, though? It takes a lot of work. Like, there's there's no kidding around that this is a a full-time, can be a full-time job if you're going to keep it in tip-top shape. It requires daily inspections. It requires um, more in-depth monthly inspections. 
it requires the people with the knowledge to do it. Um, Gailey Farms is lucky because they have uh, two guys with railroading in their blood. They used to drive the big trains. They're now there, you know, working on the, the smaller train. But they say it, it's virtually the same. You know, you're working with air brakes and, and, and basic mechanical stuff. So people with that knowledge, um, they should find it fairly routine. It's just a matter, I guess, of finding those people. Gailey Farms is lucky to have uh, people in that position. But again, you have to step back and go, wait a minute. If a family business with a tiny budget, you know, we're not talking millions of dollars like the Vancouver Park Board. Um, if they can do it with a crew of five people, how come a government organization can't figure this out? Right. Um, you know, they're, they're clearly gotten to the point where, for whatever reason, the, the train didn't get the attention it needed over time. And now it's in an advanced state of deterioration. So um, you're going to have to spend more money to get it up and running again. Right. This is a train, though, that it's a bit of a jewel in the crown, right? Like, it's, this is a very yeah. important train to the operations at the park. Huge, right? It, 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 when we, we saw the proof in the pudding from the numbers from the burn fund, right? Bright Night still yeah. went ahead. The lights were up. But according to the, the burn fund, donations dropped by 50%. So there is the proof that people come in large part to see the train, right? And, and, and we talked to Trisha Barker yesterday. She's a former park board commissioner, points out, you know, it, it's, it's important to the park overall in that um, people come to see the train. They then go in maybe to a restaurant or they go to the aquarium. So it's a draw um, to the park for a lot of families and has been for generations. I think um, why people are so passionate about this is because it's something their dad took them on as a kid, and now they take their kids on it. And it was one of the few things in the city that was affordable and, and was intergenerational. It really hadn't changed over time. Right. Okay, so what does the park board, the current park board, have to say about this? What are their priorities here? That's a good question. We did put in a request to speak to someone from the park board on camera. They denied our request. I would like to hear from the current park board commissioners as to what the plan is to get the train back on track. Um, my sense is maybe they're still getting their footing, being new on the job, although it's been a few months now. I yeah. mean, you know, sooner or later, this is going to be on them, right? Um, we do know that the park board, um, and, and just so I'm always differentiating between elected commissioners and staff, so park board staff have put out a request for proposals to fully electrify the line. So they want to replace the gas-powered locomotives with electric ones. Um, the question around that, though, is, you know, noble venture perhaps, but they have four locomotives. Um, did, did it really need to be out of service for, for that to happen? Like you could have yeah. done one at a time, in theory, and, and kept the train running, kept the donations coming into bright nights. Also, I think it's fair to question them and say, listen, what is your schedule for this? Is this going to be up and running for the next very critical, you know, Halloween season, Christmas season? That's a very good question. And, and I did put to the park board via email uh, some weeks back that I asked if they can commit to the train being up by summer. Because even though it's, you know, not a signature event around it in the summer, the train runs daily during the summer months. It's very popular for families and they will not commit to it being up and running by summer. So we, we kind of are in this holding pattern. The train is closed indefinitely. Um, perhaps it will take public pressure to 
get some firmer answers from the park board here. Have they, I know that you said that you asked them for a statement, but was there any indication of when they might be able to talk about this? No, it was a pretty uh, flat out one line. We have no one available to speak to you about this. Really? So, so I don't, I don't know what to, what to make of that. They don't, they don't know. They, they don't want to tell us. I, I don't know. Well, keep up the pressure, Jordan. Thank you for this. Thank you, Simi. I will. <laughs> okay, that's Jordan Armstrong, Global News reporter and anchor about his story that he's working on. This is so fascinating because it seems like such a simple thing. But, that, you know, so many cases when it's stories that get big because of some political reason, it is something simple that politicians could fix. They don't. They ignore it. turns into a thing. I think it's fair to say this has turned into a thing. This is the Stanley Park train, not operating last Halloween, not operating for Christmas. Park board saying, oh, it's antique. It needs highly specialized service and maintenance. And now there's all these issues, overgrown vegetation, disrupting sight lines, decaying infrastructure. Uh, They need a full condition report from a third party contractor. The list went on and on. Well, Jordan has been able to, you know, shop around, made a little trip over to Vancouver Island and has found other trains, including one that was the same make and model as the one in Stanley Park that is maintained just fine on a small family farm, about five employees who managed to keep that running in perfect condition. So if that's the case, small family farm can do it. Why can't the Vancouver Park Board do it? Why can't they tell us what even the schedule is to get something like that, which is a public asset back up and running. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. And you know what? You can call or text our buzz line to 604-331-2899.